0: Dear listeners, welcome to Medicine Today on Digital Health. For this, the sixth episode of the podcast, we decided to jump to Sweden. Curious why? There is a lot of excitement around digital health in Sweden. The government set itself a goal to make the country the world leader in e-health and digital health by 2025. As exciting as it may seem, according to OECD, Sweden is facing similar problems as many other countries. There is a lack of central direction and the large number of independent providers has led to multiple data systems being used in primary care. For example... Only 20% of primary care doctors receive necessary information to manage patients within 48 hours of discharge from hospital. But setting policy and system challenges aside, in terms of digital health innovation, Sweden has a lot to offer. I talked to Professor Dr. Anthony Turner, head of the Biosensors and Bioelectronics Center at Linkoping University in Sweden. We talked about wearables, point-of-care devices and sensors. The thing is, we can measure a lot of parameters today, but which ones make sense? Which bring actual better outcomes for patients? Dr. Turner couldn't be a more perfect person for this topic. He founded the World Congress on Biosensors in 1990s and has chaired it ever since. He has over 750 publications and patents in the field of biosensors and has, among other things, served as an advisor to the European Parliament at a high expert level. Before the conversation with Dr. Turner, let me just invite you to listen to our other episodes as well. We unveiled why IT is so hard to integrate in healthcare. We talked about the hidden potential of data in online health communities. We talked about where doctors can prescribe the apps and many more things. To learn more, go to iTunes, subscribe and rate the podcast and of course recommend it to others as well. You can find it under Medicine Today on Digital Health. I'm your host, healthcare and medicine journalist, Tiasa Zaitz. Dr. Turner, you've been in Sweden for six years. Do you speak Swedish?
1: Oh, no, this is the most embarrassing question that you could put to me because (laughs) everybody in Sweden speaks, first of all, speaks such excellence English, that there is absolutely no need to learn the language. Secondly, I have a 30-strong a, a, a international team, so our common language is English. And thirdly, every Swede I meet wants to speak English, to practice their English. So my Swedish is useless.
0: Your knowledge is so much more valuable, I, I would assume.
1: Well, that seems to be the, the priority to extract the information in the most efficient way as possible from me. And uh, that's not best done in Swedish, I'm afraid. <laughs>
0: Sweden is supposed to have one of the best healthcare systems uh, in the world. The number of doctors is not problematic. People don't really go to the doctor's office that often. So if you look at the statistics, it looks pretty perfect. I don't know how it is in real life. Do you have good experiences or are you fortunate enough that you didn't even have to get into the healthcare system much?
1: Oh, I've had very good personal experience, but of course it's anecdotal and just one person, so it's hardly a, a professional view. Uh, but my family certainly have used the uh, Swedish healthcare system and uh, it's been uh, a very pleasant experience so far. We've uh, uh, obviously there's a little bit of waiting as always, especially if it's not urgent. But um, usually uh, if there's anything uh, urgent, it, things happen very quickly. It's, I mean, the whole of Sweden is rather pleasant in that it's generally not crowded or huge queues and lots of people. Of course, I'm lucky. I don't live in the largest city. Uh, Linköping is the fifth largest city in, uh, in Sweden, but, uh, uh, access to healthcare is very good and the service. Personally, has been uh, excellent so far. Uh, People seem to have time; Uh, they uh, they're able to administer the treatment. Of course, we have a a system of some fees. Uh, Small fees are taken, which I think is a good idea. When you visit the uh, doctor here in Sweden, you pay uh, uh, 150 krona. It's about about uh, 14, 15 euro, and uh, I think that perhaps stops people wasting time. But uh, then if you can't afford it, of course, you don't have to pay. And uh, even in any one year, if you use the service a lot, then it becomes free. Yeah,
0: and the fees, I'm sure, help that you're not facing overuse of medical treatments.
1: My other experience is the UK, and uh, we do find very crowded doctor surgeries there. And I do wonder whether a small fee like we have in Sweden isn't a, a good idea, you know, to stop people just stopping in for a chat with the doctor sort of thing and uh, taking it a little bit more seriously but uh, uh, of course free health care in the UK is a, is a very hot potato politically so uh, uh, to see a change there would be um, very dramatic. <laughs> uh,
0: one of the things I find interesting about Sweden is that the Swedish government uh, set itself a very optimistic uh, goal by 2025 they want to be the world's best country in the area of e-health and i'm mentioning this because of your work you're the head of the biosensors and bioelectronic center and um, working on point of care devices must be exciting in a country that is striving to adopt these kind of solutions
1: yes there's a lot of interest in digital healthcare. care i uh one of the things i do is uh that i chair the scientific committee for digital health days which runs out of stockholm and uh gathers uh, not only academic speakers but a large number of entrepreneurs and small companies entering the space with everything from apps to devices to new systems to uh improve uh, prove healthcare and there's a, a very exciting atmosphere i think here about the possibilities for the future I mean, one one sometimes thinks about uh, digital health being a great boon to rural communities and developing countries where the infrastructure isn't present. But also in Sweden, we have a lot of rural areas and areas away from in the countryside and away from central facilities. So at that level, there's also a need for decentralized and efficient delivery of healthcare, care, even in, in relatively wealthy uh, communities such as... Uh, such as Sweden. M- many countries I visit hold Sweden up to be a, a, a good example of how things are delivered and I think that uh, uh, Sweden likes to stay ahead and uh, in, sees this area as an exciting area and combining some of its traditional skills in pharmaceuticals, in telecommunications uh, and of course in healthcare itself. So, And there's major debate uh, that at the government level as to how to Deliver healthcare uh, better uh, in the future. When one looks at the financial statistics, their affordability of healthcare into the future um, or lack of it is frightening. Virtually any country and projects its healthcare costs, if you just keep doing the same thing we're doing now, it becomes unaffordable virtually everywhere. So we've really got to do something different to reduce cost and improve service. And the idea of e-health and mobile health, where you can bring those two apparently uh, opposing forces together. You can deliver a more personal service that is much more convenient, but you also potentially can do it without the cost of uh, large facilities and um, expensive infrastructure. It's a win-win if it can be done. But of course, there's a number of forces for it, but also some forces against as well that need to be overcome.
0: Yes, there has to be a lot of collaboration and the legislation needs to be put in place and there's a lot of other hurdles preventing digital health to be adopted faster. You mentioned costs and that's one of the main promises of digital health. If we look at uh, the genome sequencing at the beginning, uh, one test costed 100 million US dollars and now it's you can get a test for 100 dollars and similarly a device that that you helped design, which is a point-of-care device to monitor diabetes, kidney, and heart disease, is supposed to cost 50 cents when it's finished, and it should replace a filling cabinet of devices in a laboratory that cost like 10,000 euros. Could you tell me a bit more about how such a decrease in the price is possible without losing the, the quality of research
1: let's start with the um uh, the miniaturization and the low cost and and how things can be reduced in size and still deliver uh quality and and what's needed um and the, the biosensors, of course, have had a very successful history of doing this over the years. Um, I mean, the first or one of the most famous things I was involved in was managing the team that developed the first electrochemical home blood glucose monitors. And there, effectively, we took instruments that in the lab that were costing uh, $40,000 and reduced them to an instrument that now can be manufactured for about 7 to $15 dollars. You may ask, you know, how was that uh, possible? The instrument itself, a lot of the advances in uh, microelectronics have enabled the miniaturization of instruments, and then there's also the, the diagnostic element that has to plug into the instrument. But looking at the instruments themselves, uh, it's uh, if you take out all the redundancy uh, of laboratory instruments, because when you're producing a, a device for the home, there's a lot of things, basically, you don't need. You can take out a lot of the flexibility uh, in laboratory instruments, look for the miniaturization that's available from microelectronics and bring the whole thing down uh, quite rapidly. So we started with the first devices being able to shrink a a cabinet-sized piece of instrument laboratory instrumentation down to, in fact, one of the smallest devices ever made still, which was a pen-shaped device modelled on a watch pen. So there was a little display in the uh, top end of the pen and the sensor just plugged in where you would normally write with the pen. That was done with ASIC technology, which was enabled by the largest quantity or the large quantity of instruments that were going to be needed uh, in that application more recently companies such as texas instruments have produced now chips that are capable of performing all the electrochemical functions that you might need in such a sensor so you can now buy off the shelf for 5 to 10 dollars a chip that will do most of, have most of the functionality of uh, these sort of 40,000 dollar instruments of 30 years ago so it's very much simpler to build uh, cheaper instrumentation with most of the essential functionality that you need. Now, these instruments are not exactly the equivalent of the lab instruments. They, they don't have quite the refinement, but they can deliver the results that we need for a home uh, diagnostic device.
0: At least some laboratory technicians would disagree that the point of care devices can be as accurate as the research in laboratory, but it's always like that with new technologies. Uh, the existing uh, professions or professionals are not enthusiastic about the, the idea that a machine might, you know, reduce the need around the number of specialists.
1: Well, I think that's best illustrated by the biological part of the machine, because in a biosensor, there are um, sort of more than two elements. There's the sensor and the transducer, but also the electronics that interprets and transmits, in some cases, uh, the signal biosensor itself also for general public use needs to be produced by a convenient and volume manufacture process for instance in the case of glucose sensors that process was screen printing which is the sort of technique that you use to make t-shirts but we adapted uh, for the first time for making these analytical uh, sensors that incorporated enzymes and uh, electronic inks to make a little plug-in element. Now, part of the issue there is volume. We're able to reduce the cost of these now uh, just three or four cents to produce such a sensor, but by the billion. You have to make billions of them to get that cost down. So the lower the volume, the higher the price, uh, broadly speaking. You don't get the efficiencies until you get the, the high volumes. But let me address that issue about accuracy. One of the big debates, if you like, um, is how accurate and how sensitive a device has to be. And if you come at it from a, a, an analytical laboratory perspective, you're always looking for the best. You're looking for the best possible performance, the best accuracy, the best sensitivity, and the best reproducibility. Um, when you come to these handheld or portable or wearable devices, it's really very useful to think about how good does it have to be uh, to serve its purpose rather than how good, you know, can it be the ultimate? in in performance and there's a contrast here between say for instance um, devices that might be used to enforce rules or legislation versus devices that are used to help manage uh, conditions or to give early warnings and so on and we've seen a good example of this with diabetes for example the devices that uh, many, many people with diabetes use and buy every day from the, or, or have issued from the pharmacy are not as accurate as the uh, clinical chemistry laboratory. That's absolutely clear. Uh, but it doesn't matter. They're good enough to make the clinical decisions and the management decisions that they're designed for.
0: That is a good point. Sometimes it suffices to monitor the trend in a disease. However, speaking more broadly, one issue can occur with wearables and sensors. Sometimes Frequent monitoring does not bring any benefit if we look at wearables for heart functions. Randomized clinical trials have shown that they might increase the number of hospitalizations, but don't necessarily improve patient outcome. So the key thing here is that gathered data must be analyzed to be useful.
1: Um, as a sensor technologist, always we have to ask the question: Is there a useful action? There is no point in building a sensor unless there's an action that you can take as a result of it. That action has to be effective, and the actions can be on different timescales as well. I mean, genetic testing you're not going to do every day, for example, uh, whereas glucose testing you're going to do more than every day. Obviously, as more results become available, we gain more knowledge about About the value of certain measurements that were not otherwise available. But the examples we're working on. Take glucose for diabetes. There is no doubt that, uh, you can take a very, very important decisions based on uh, either intermittent or preferably continuous monitoring of glucose by adjusting the insulin level. And you're talking about a, a life saving technique there, not uh, as well as better management and the avoidance of long term complications and so on. Take another one. Kidney disease is the biggest unrecognized problem that we can tackle next because there are many uh, millions of people with undiagnosed kidney disease that could benefit from an earlier diagnosis or better management to avoid uh, kidney disease progressing. So markers there would be extremely valuable. And the other one you mentioned at the beginning, heart disease again, Um, is a a fairly obvious one where being able to diagnose quickly and simply would be of, of great benefit. But also, you know, there are many conditions that can be managed and many areas that are amenable to effective use of sensors. I think the problem here, maybe, is that the Continuous monitors and so on that we've seen abound so far have been the easy ones. They've been the ones that have been technologically accessible. And so the sorts of wearable devices we see commercially available now have been the ones that have been easy to realise and there's not been enough focus, uh, to my mind, uh, on developing the sensors we actually need. Our work is focused on really being able to measure the chemistry of the body Body and the ke- biochemistry of the body rather than these easily accessible external signals that have been predominated in the, in the market so far.
0: It's exciting to see all the technologies around diabetes, especially the artificial pancreas that's making it possible for patients to almost completely forget on their diabetes. But more broadly speaking, another potential problem in monitoring devices is the action that should follow a specific measurement. Sometimes doctor's visits can be better than monitors because human surveillance has a different effect than a device. You can ignore a device when you don't like the result, but you will have a harder time to look in the doctor's eyes and ignore what he says, especially if this is a specialist for a chronic disease you need to see often.
1: The issue of human contact versus machine-based contact if you like is a fascinating one that perhaps in its wider implications is beyond my uh, my expertise but I certainly would like to comment at the level of sensors and monitoring. You can make the argument two different ways. Obviously the support of a human and the advice of a human is hugely valuable. But also, most of us nowadays are very used to seeking information electronically as well, certainly the the younger generation. We hear from the doctors now of the Google generation, where rather than a person walking into a doctor's office with no knowledge of what their problem is and asking the doctor to tell them what the issue is, a lot of people now will go forearmed with some information and have a much more intelligent conversation with the the expert that's going to advise them, and moreover, of course, that expert advice doesn't have to be face to face. I mean, my personal experience is that personal chemistry is very useful when you first get to know someone, but um, you know, follow-ups can be done electronically. I think very effectively. You know, having the convenience and things in your pocket, on your desk, in your home certainly have many benefits, and I. I'm not saying you should lose the personal contact but I think if you're talking about perhaps having the same personal contact but then having a whole bunch of um, electronic contact and monitoring in between then we can see a massive improvement in both the amount of information and the action that a person can take but also the quality of the conversation they can then have with their human advisor when they have the rather infrequent chances to meet the specialist.
0: I think we're still at the beginning of understanding and figuring out the best combination of online and offline uh, communications and all the concerns uh, around that. uh, Not to get too far, I want to talk a bit more about the recent point-of-care device that you helped design. This was a device to monitor diabetes, kidney and heart disease all at once. Can you tell me a bit more about this device? Is it meant... As something in a doctor's office, or something a patient or just anyone would have at home to.
1: I think I need to clarify a little bit here. The device I think you're referring to is a is a demonstrator, a demonstration platform that we've produced. So it's not intended to be uh, a finished product that uh, goes out with uh, a direct use. So what we've been working on is to show that we can produce uh, very low-cost disposable or simple or inexpensive instruments that are capable of monitoring multiple parameters simultaneously or one after another as desired and I think the particular piece of work you're uh, thinking of is uh, one that we recently published in a collaboration with a CREO Swedish ICT uh, here in Linköping and uh, Norrköping. We created a paper instrument we reduced all the components down to either printed formats or very simple formats that could be incorporated on a piece of plastic, like a credit card or a business card, that was capable of making uh, several measurements either simultaneously or several measurements of the same thing, one after another, or several uh, different measurements. Now, in some, uh, the analytes you've mentioned we're, we're working on uh, but we wouldn't necessarily put all of them uh, in the same instrument at the same time but there are occasions when you would. For instance for metabolic disease you may want to measure more than just one parameter so this is a great way to do it. In other cases you may want to get the measurement of different markers separately and so again this is a, a very good a good way forward. But there are also connections. I mean, for instance, if you have diabetes, you may well want to monitor your kidney uh, condition as well, because kidney failure is a long term complication of diabetes. So there are occasions when you would want to mix and match. Classically, in critical care analysis, you monitor uh, many parameters such as glucose, lactate, creatinine, sodium, potassium, and so on. You know, you want to know a number of parameters parameters frequently in order to to monitor the condition. And what we're demonstrating in that instrument is the possibilities um, rather than a final design.
0: I guess the potential of such monitors and a new pool of data is that it might bring new realizations and discoveries for the future generations, even if we don't quite know how to make most of them today.
1: Yes, I mean, you're now touching on another extremely important and very large topic of data. On the exciting end of things, the fact that you will have a very large population of people potentially monitoring a large number of things gives you a huge resource that in itself is a living laboratory or a research tool that's going to lead to new knowledge there are questions of course when you get into this about who owns that knowledge and what's done with that knowledge and questions of privacy and so on which are quite complex but uh, on the positive side there's a there's a uh, potentially a huge benefit from this and so these issues need to be addressed and solved
0: by the way when it comes to point of care devices and you mentioned that in sweden the digital health ecosystem is very lively and exciting how hard it is to get these solutions in the healthcare system is it difficult to get reimbursed what's the process if you want to do that
1: it's always difficult to introduce new technology for a a number of reasons We've touched upon one reason, which is the conservatism and resistance which is healthy in some respects because obviously you need to question and challenge new technology um, and there are examples of course of, of poor technology or poor ideas uh, that uh, people have tried to introduce that have quite correctly been uh, resisted but then there are also examples of good technology that's been resisted and taken a time to come in. The next question of course is cost because pretty much all the healthcare systems. Systems, including in Sweden are stretched in terms of resources and if you're going to introduce a new technology it needs to be evaluated to be cost effective and to deliver value for money and benefit to uh, the patient that is somehow reflects the cost of that technology. So again I think it's quite correct to, uh, to, to, to question but obviously one needs a, a route forward. This also then links to reimbursement because the uh, healthcare systems can't just endlessly reimburse every possible direction. So there has to be a set of priorities, an evaluation of clinical benefit and uh, decisions have to be made. But we do see new technology being introduced. Uh, I've used a lot of diabetes examples because it's an area I've worked in for 35 years now and one sees now in Sweden the uh, wearable glucose sensors being widely adopted, being reimbursed and being recommended for type 1 diabetes very actively in Sweden and resulting in a lot of uh, positive patient feedback. So that sort of technology does get introduced if the clear benefits can be argued.
0: I was surprised to hear uh, two years ago already on one of the MedTech conferences, that investors are not interested in wearables anymore because um, ingestible sensors, implantable sensors are the thing that are attracting more attention already. So are wearables dead?
1: The, the wearables issue is uh, well known. Two or three years ago, the investment community started slackening off from its uh, enthusiasm for wearables, partly because they not they've not seen the penetration, as they would put it, in terms of the take up. These were supposed to be consumer products, you know, with really large scale take up, and they've been disappointed. I think at um, the amount of that take up, and part of this goes back to your earlier points that we were making that the sensors that have been incorporated have been fortuitous rather than desirable in some cases at least that can be argued that way We haven't made the sensors that we really need. We've used the sensors that we happen to have. Um, So it's hardly surprising that um, the results have been a little disappointing, although um, also opening up some exciting new avenues. The interest in more complex issues is, again, reflecting the sort of idea I, I said earlier, that we really want to know about the chemistries of the body and to have therapeutically effective actions as a result of uh, those measurements, and that does take you towards uh, more difficult tasks, sensors that are more difficult to design, and locations that are more uh, difficult to access. So the um, enthusiasm for uh, bioelectronics and for implantable devices is being revived Although this is also a, a tricky area because once you go inside the body, you have to be a lot more careful. Something that's simply worn externally and doesn't have any uh, element of invading the body. So once you're putting devices in people, there's going to be a lot longer path and more expensive path than simply strapping on a watch. It, it's doable but it can take a long time. I mean, take the implantable glucose sensor, which is now available, and continuous monitoring There is that's a, a, an excellent example, but it's taken 40 years to go from um, the original idea uh, to the, uh, the, the device being realized commercially. Um, it's not an easy path.
0: Absolutely. I think the general calculation is that it takes 17 years for an innovation to become a part of standard medical practice. One of the things you also combine is bioimaging for drug delivery. How do you do that?
1: The molecular design that we use in biosensors is to try to get some sort of sensing molecule that then interfaces with a transducer to produce a, di- a useful digital electronic signal reflecting the, the thing we're trying to measure, and then you can transmit that signal, etc. In imaging, we're often using quite similar molecular recognition, uh, but then we're probing externally to get the signal out, if you like, with some some sort of electromagnetic radiation or uh, simply looking at fluorescence or signals that we can uh, access. And so this is as I say much the same molecular design but a different visualization of the of the result. With the drug delivery the ideal is that we are combining Uh, molecular recognition with therapeutic release or or actuation so that we either have some biochemical or chemical uh, release in response to a particular marker or indicator or perhaps a physical stimulus uh, in response to that. And these uh, uh, require very clever molecular designs where we combine the recognition with the release uh, and the uh, uh, biocompatibility that's necessary to place all of this in the body or perhaps on the body. I mean, sometimes these devices can be uh, skin patches and, and the like. And this is, again, a very an area of very active research, but it's complex and it's going to take um, a good length of time to get these things working well.
0: It always fascinates me how, despite all the knowledge we have around disease mechanisms, cell receptors and the susceptibility to inhibitors. A lot of complexity is still not understood. Patients still react differently to drugs and therapies.
1: The challenge is the multiple different conditions that you're considering, pathways you're considering in the cases of cancers, difficulty in identifying good markers that are uh, uh, effective and and uh, reliable. But of course, the point you've alluded to there is the personalization, which is really, um, a huge potential benefit because for thousands of years, effectively, we've treated patients as, as average patients. Uh, we've sort of developed treatments based on uh, the average person rather than the individual. And, of course, you need very sophisticated measurement if of the individual if you're going to try to resolve things at a personal level. So this whole concept of personalized medicine is hugely exciting um, if we can really uh, deliver the promise there. Biochemical sensors, biosensors offer the potential to characterize the individual and characterize the progression of the treatment uh, either intermittently or, 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 or with frequent measurements or even continuous measurement to really uh, monitor and control the treatment and and tailor it absolutely to the particular condition in the particular individual under the particular circumstances that uh, we're facing uh, at the time.
0: One of the interesting points doctors make, diagnostics may not be um, reasonable if we don't know what to do with the results so if we don't have a cure for a certain problem then what difference does it make to know that you have that problem but in that sense i think personalized medicine is exciting for the generations to come so even if we don't know what to do with the data today it's going to help uh, the next generations to to be better uh, managed
1: there's this curious question about whether you want to know, even if you can't do anything about it. And I actually had a radio interview a couple of years ago where we had a panel discussion... And people were asked, if you had an incurable disease, do you want to know? Strangely for me, the the other members of the panel answered no, whereas my answer was yes. So I think it depends on your personality, perhaps, and uh, where you are in life as to uh, how much knowledge you want. But for me, I would want to put my affairs in order. And I think I want to know how long I've got, basically.
0: It all depends in the end on how much stronger curiosity is over the fear of the unknown. But um, you're dealing with all sorts of technologies, from mobile health, wearable sensors, lateral flow devices, nanostructures. How far are we with nanorobots, for example? What is, in your view, most promising,
1: they're all exciting and they all have possibilities. I mean, just picking up your last comment about nanorobots, I think perhaps they're going, they, they may be designed more at a molecular level than, than at a sort of mechanical level, but that's still an open question. But all of the other devices have their place. So I think the important thing is that you, you use the right technology for the right application. And some of the things you named there are, Tools or materials, and others are finished devices. And so, a lot of the time, we're combining all or several of the things you've just said. So, nanomaterials go into lateral flow assays, or or biosensors, or possibly nanorobots, or or their molecular equivalents, which are able to uh, sense, move, perhaps, and uh, uh, at least get to a location and uh, release or, or or perform some action uh, that is useful there's a uh, uh, I think huge potential in everything you mention. Uh, the, the, the comments also have some of the things that you haven't mentioned there's been a long-standing and huge interest in non-invasive monitoring. Some people have called it the Star Trek monitor, if you like, the tricorder, uh, that you just wave over somebody and diagnose all problems. This has been a dream for marketeers for many, many years. We keep getting the question, can we do this? Can we actually get the necessary biochemical information out of the body without getting the chemical contact? And most of what I'm doing is involving some sort of molecular contact to uh, recognize the molecules of interest but you have to keep an eye open all the time on the possibilities of getting that information externally and probably many billions of dollars have been invested on trying to achieve non-invasive monitoring and in most cases unsuccessfully but the, People are still trying and there's a huge amount of interest and, uh, you know, we're watching that space. I don't think that many of the things we really want to monitor uh, can be tackled uh, with, with non-invasive monitoring. Um, but I mean, there, there are obviously uh, some. I mean, pregnancy testing is a, is a good non-invasive uh, example. Um, pulse oximetry is a great example of successful non-invasive monitoring. But there's lots of things we would like to monitor that we can't do uh, effectively, although there are many claims out there and many people um, hoping to do it and attracting investment to to try to do it
0: actually some kids are already on the market for self-diagnosis of uh, i don't know ear infections or uh, throat infections however here the problem becomes that if even if you self-diagnose yourself you still need a prescription for from your doctor which means that again you need to go see him and get in the healthcare system.
1: I mean, all of this, again, goes to um, how all this is going to be used, whether um, an early warning is um, a a good trigger to get you to go and have an analysis, or whether it's just going to waste the doctor's time with increasing the the worried well, and uh, people going along and unnecessarily burdening the healthcare system with irrelevant questions So, um, I, I, but again I think we can s- produce you know, good support systems, uh, now there's a lot of electronic advice available online if you've uh, got certain symptoms um, you can type those in and get the answers I don't see why you shouldn't have certain measurements going in uh, to those uh, systems as well um, so that you can get some intelligent advice from the, uh, the online services that are available
0: in the previous episode we actually had a big discussion on online health communities which are a really good source of information but anyway i know you have to run Um, just a final question do you use any mobile health apps biosensors do you test your solutions on yourself as well
1: Oh, absolutely. I I test myself. Obviously, it it depends on the circumstances. Some things that are already commercial products I use um, out of interest. I use one product uh, out of necessity. Uh, When I've got the appropriate ethical approval, I test devices um, that we're developing.
0: Must be interesting to know so much about yourself. Did you ever find out something that you were regretting afterwards?
1: Thankfully, not yet. But as I answered earlier, I, I, I think that I want to know the information. But let's find out when I do get some nasty information. Maybe I'll change my mind.
0: Dr. Turner, thank you so much for your time. I think we could talk for hours more and maybe we can continue the discussion some other time.
1: Yeah, it was lovely to talk to you. And uh, I, uh, I hope uh, this has been, been a useful interview for you.
0: Dear listeners, this was the sixth episode of Medicine Today on Digital Health. Do subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or SoundCloud, rate it, review it and recommend it to others if you liked it. And if this was the first episode that you've listened to, check out the others as well. I talked to Unity Stokes from Startup Health, the world's largest network of digital health enthusiasts and experts. We presented Babylon Health and the potential of mHealth apps with Ali Parsa in the first episode, with a critical thoughts on digital health from the eminent opinion leader Esther Dyson. And there's more. But I leave the exploration to you. Enjoy!